0: Uh, I want to speak to us today about the new covenant i 'm sure that 's something that we 've all heard sermons on before um, it 's not a topic that can be covered with one sermon so today, what I hope to do is is focus on a, a tiny sliver of of the the, the teaching the bible 's teaching about the new covenant we 'll we'll, we'll talk about it in general, uh, but I, I really want us to focus our uh, our attention today on um, when God makes this promise in Jeremiah 31 of the new covenant, and I'm sure this is a passage we've all heard before many times. It's a very uh, a common passage. But when God makes this promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah Jeremiah 31, who was his focus? To whom or for whom was this promise made? Okay, so, so that's basically what we'll talk about today. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about what is the new covenant promise? So we'll, we'll dissect that a little bit. And then we'll move on to the second point, which is for whom was the new covenant made? Now, of course, um, when we come to that word covenant, when the Bible uses that word covenant, uh, uh, you know, we don't use that word covenant anymore uh, in our uh, everyday colloquial English. Um, you think of a covenant as an agreement, um, agreement between two parties. When when we receive, uh, I don't know, advertisement for a new agreement, uh, a lot of times that doesn't bring joy and thanksgiving. A lot of times it brings worry and uh, cautiousness, doubt. Uh, you know, just a couple years ago, and I'm sure many of you have gone through the same experience when you first buy a house and you get approved for a mortgage. What's the next thing that comes in the mail? But offers for refinancing, right? Offers for refinancing. We're going to, you know, new, new agreements, new covenants. We're going to cut down your monthly payments by this much. You know, you'll, 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 um, you know it'll be better. you have more money and you'll get to pay less of it back. And you think, how is that ever possible? And so when we, in our everyday lives, when we come to the idea of a new agreement, or, if I could put it in air quotes, "A new covenant that doesn't sound all that great. might raise suspicion. But the Bible is clear, and as we've read in the Old Testament reading, and especially in the Hebrews reading, the New Testament reading, God makes it very clear: The New covenant is better than the old. The New covenant is better than the old." We're going to talk about why today. So first, what is the promise? of the New Covenant. And for this part, we're just going to briefly summarize, okay? Again, like I said, the the biblical teaching on the New Covenant is large. You know, we could spend several sermons or several series on this, but we're just going to try to concisely summarize what is the New Covenant. In order for us to do that, we need to take one step back to talk about what is the problem. Uh, The problem... As presented to us in scripture, uh, one of the best places to go for that is in Romans 3. As you know, Romans 3 verses 9 to 11 talks about the problem of sin. This is what the Bible says. Romans 3 beginning of verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Uh, Here, Paul, the writer, is comparing Jews and Gentiles. And Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? No, not at all. For We have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. In these verses about the problem of sin, as Paul summarizes, you know, in Romans, we know that in the first three chapters, He's building up an argument, an indictment against the whole human race, putting us, uh, indicting all of us as under sin. And this is his conclusion that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands it. There's no one who seeks after God. Here in these verses, we actually see three aspects of sin, three aspects of sin. We're not talking about three different sins. Sin is one big problem and it presents us with one big problem. Issue. But but to, to kind of help us understand it, we can look at it in three aspects. First, there is the legal problem or the judicial problem. Romans 3:10, when the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. That word righteous means all of us are guilty. Uh, if you think of God's throne room as a court and God as the judge. Uh, what the legal problem says is we all stand before God guilty and not only that condemned guilty because we have sins and condemned because God, as the righteous judge, must judge and punish sins. So Romans 310, that word, there are none righteous uh, That's telling us we have a legal problem before God. In addition to the legal problem, we have a heart problem. Uh, an internal problem, not just a problem with our legal status before God, but a, but a heart problem. Romans 3:11: There is no one who understands, no one understands. There is no one who seeks after God, no one who, who, who wants to uh, uh, follow God, or, or wants to give their lives to God. Let me illustrate the problem in this way. Uh, in the field of philosophy. Uh, for a while and maybe still now there there was the uh, the idea of a blank slate the tabula rosa. I don't know if any of you have ever, ever heard that. Meaning uh, philosophers have posited wrongly, I would say, unbiblically, but but they have posited that all of us human beings are are, are born like a blank slate. With just a white slab or a white notepad. And as we do things, we write things, you know, on that notepad, good or bad. But but basically we uh, you know, when we're born, uh, we're, we're, we're neutral, we're morally neutral. Um, this is the problem with, with that type of philosophy, is that even if, even if, of course, the Bible says none of us are born that way, but, but even if, hypothetically speaking, even if God were to say to all of us today, uh, I'm going to give you a blank slate from this moment right now, Everything you've done in the past, all the legal problems that you face before my throne room, if, if I were to erase all of that from this point, you know, in the past and to give you a blank slate. The problem with that is the very next moment we would go and we would sin again and we would mess up our blank slate. Okay. Okay. So there are two problems so far. The legal problem, but even if God were to get rid of the legal problem, we still have a heart problem. We would go out and sin the very next moment. The third problem. uh, The third problem is a relationship problem. It's best illustrated by the events of Genesis 3. We know what happens in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve fall, and after they fall, God removes Adam from the garden. Because a holy God cannot have a relationship with a sinner. In fact, God places an angel with a flaming sword in between him and Adam, in between Adam and the garden. Meaning that if Adam were to somehow try to get back to the garden to have a relationship with God, he's got to pass through the sword of God's fiery judgment first. And we know Adam can't survive that. And so these are the three problems, the three aspects of the problem of sin, the legal problem, the heart problem, and the relationship problem. We've all heard that before. In the New Covenant, in the verses that Mark read for the Old Testament passage, God promises a solution to each aspect of of this problem. Okay, let me read these verses again. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 to 34. And their sin, I will remember no more. Just in these few compact verses, God basically gives a wonderful solution to every aspect of the problem of sin. The solution for the heart problem. He says in verse 33, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it in their hearts. For those of us who in sin rebel against God and don't have any understanding, well, God's going to the understanding there and for those of us who before had hearts that didn't want to seek after god god's going to write his law into our hearts change our hearts change our minds change our understanding that's the solution for the heart problem god presents a solution for the legal problem in verse 34 for i will forgive their iniquity and their sin i will remember no more. I want us to really focus on that phrase. I remember their sins no more. How can that be? Right? In our doctrine of God, we know God is omniscient, meaning what? He knows all things. Meaning he doesn't rem- he doesn't forget anything. There is nothing he can't remember. He remembers all things. He knows all things. And yet here God says I'm going to forgive your sins, and I'm not going to remember any more. Even humanly speaking, you know how hard that is when we have to forgive one another. And we say, sure, forgiven, forgotten, forgiven, forgotten, forgiven, forgotten, right? But really, in the back of your mind, you remember. You remember. And maybe 10, 15, 20 years down the road, and you meet that person again, and that person does the same thing again. You remember. You remember. It's so hard to not remember. And yet God, the omniscient God says, and their sins I will remember no more. The solution for our legal problem. Just amazing. And then there's a solution for the relationship problem. Again in verse 34. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. The Hebrew word for no uh, is more than the English word for no. For the English word for no, a lot of times we say, I know this, I know the math, I know the solution to the math problem. As a, so, so when we say no, we, we mean kind of like an intellectual no. For the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word for no is much more intimate, it's much more encompassing. In fact, uh, in Old Testament scripture, when a man has intimate, begins an intimate relationship with his wife, For example, Adam and Eve. The Bible, the biblical word for that is know. Adam knew Eve. So when God says, they shall all know me. It's not, it's more than just, oh, you know, God has a ledger and he, oh, that's his name and that's his face. And that's his address and that's his telephone. It's more than an intellectual knowledge. This is a relational, intimate relationship that God creates. All of this is Promised in the new covenant, and we know all of this was fulfilled by the coming, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All these promises were accomplished, fulfilled by Christ. Remember what Christ said about the Spirit before he went up, left his disciples? He said, I'm going to send the Spirit, whose work would be to convict. The world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment, John 16. Well, when the spirit convicts someone, that's a change in somebody's heart, right? A person without a changed heart doesn't, he's not convicted of any sin, much less righteousness and judgment and the need for salvation. But when the spirit comes and convicts people, that's a heart change. Romans 5 talks about Christ's one righteous act, meaning His death and resurrection, bringing about the free gift to all men, resulting in justification and life. That's a solution for our legal problem. Remember, legally the problem is we stand condemned, facing the penalty of death. But the opposite of that, the opposite of condemnation, is justification, being declared righteous in front of God. God not remembering our sins anymore and being given life. Of course, you know, we can go much more into that. We know that Christ in his death and resurrection accomplished our righteousness because he imputed, our sins were imputed to him and he imputes his righteousness to us. And of course, in Hebrews, the Bible talks about Christ opening a new and living way to God for us to have a relationship with him through his flesh so in christ all of these solutions are accomplished not only is there a solution to all these aspects of sin in the new covenant there's also assurance you ever wonder when god makes a wonderful promise to us you know our natural human tendency is to say really (laughs) really you know, where do we get the assurance? Okay, this is, this is what Jeremiah says in uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 35 to 36. I'm just going to read it. We didn't read it in our Old Testament reading, but I'll just read it for you now. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Here is the assurance for why the promises of the new covenant are true and will forever be true. It's in creation. It's in the things in creation that we observe all around us. God says, if you see the sun rising the next day, and if you see the moon rising tonight, if those ordinances continue, then so will the promise of the new covenant. God even says, if you, if any of us, can measure just we're not talking about measuring outer space we're just talking about measuring earth right measuring the depth of the sea you realize that even today with all of our technology we still haven't combed every inch of the depth of our sea we cannot measure our oceans and god says if any of us can measure those things the heavens or the seas or the foundations of the earth Right? If these remain unsearchable, then so will my new covenant be, be true and, and assured to you. So that's it. That's the new covenant in a nutshell. But today, what I really want us to focus our attention to is for whom? For whom did God make this promise of the new covenant? In verse 1. Jeremiah 31 verse 1, there the Bible says, At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. This promise is made for all the families of Israel. When we hear that phrase, the families of Israel, immediately we think of the 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Or we might think of the new Israel as all of us believers in the New Testament are contemplated as the children of Abraham, the new Israel by faith. All of these are correct, but that's not the full picture. That's not the most accurate picture in Jeremiah 31, because if you really focus on the words of Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant in this chapter is actually made To the ten tribes, to the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. How do we know that? Well, because in verses 1 through 9, you have all these references to specific locations in the northern kingdom of Israel. Look at verse 5. The Bible, God refers to the mountains of Samaria. Samaria, of course, was the capital of the northern kingdom. And yes, there were mountains around the capital. Two famous mountains that we know of, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Right? Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Those two mountains in scripture were the mountains that during the Exodus, half of the tribe stood on Gerizim and half of the tribe stood on Ebal. Right? There was a valley in between. That valley is where Samaria is. But, but those are the mountains of Samaria and, and one side proclaimed the covenant and one side proclaimed the covenant blessings and one side proclaimed the covenant curses. Um, but though, that's the mountain of Samaria. It's in the northern kingdom. It's actually in the tribe of Manasseh. Look at verse 6. The Bible talks about a Mount Ephraim. It's the same mountain range, but now that mountain range extends from Manasseh to the tribe of Ephraim, both northern tribes. Mount Ephraim is famous for being the place where Joshua, Joshua was an Ephraimite, and that's the place on Mount Ephraim where, where Joshua was, was buried. Uh, Mount Ephraim is also famous for something more infamous. That was the hometown or the uh the the, 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 the hometown of the northern kingdom's first king, Jeroboam. Um Jeroboam, it says in Scripture, built up these towns and cities around Mount Ephraim. Look at verse 9. There the Bible says, For I am, God says, I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim, Ephraim is my firstborn. Here there's an interesting play on words. Uh, these words actually mimic the words of Moses to Pharaoh in Exodus 4. Right. Moses has been wandering around. God appears to him in a burning bush. Moses kind of runs away from God a little bit. Right. To median. Right. God calls him back. And when Moses finally takes up that task, God says, you will go to Pharaoh and you will tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. Exodus 4.22. You shall tell Pharaoh, saying, no. Uh, Sorry. Shall tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Here in Jeremiah 31, it's the same words except with one added little phrase. That's a little turn of phrase. God says, "Israel is my first. Uh, Israel is my son, and Ephraim. Ephraim is my firstborn." Now we know in scripture that um, just as Judah eventually became synonymous with all of the southern kingdom, Ephraim would also become synonymous with all of the northern kingdom. So here, God is making his focus very specific. He's focusing on the northern ten tribes. And he's making the promise of the new covenant to the northern ten tribes of Israel. Now, why is this important? Well, think about the northern kingdom. Think about who they were. Think about what kind of people They were from biblical knowledge, you know, what you've read in the scripture. Think about what became of them. The northern kingdom, they are the worst of the worst, they are the most sinful of the sinful. It's it's in the northern kingdom that we get, probably in scripture, the two most evil, wicked monarchs Ahab and Jezebel. It's the northern kingdom that gets judged first. They were destroyed by the Assyrians. And it's, a, it's the northern kingdom that we never hear again from them in scripture. There's no record of them after the exile. At least for the southern kingdom, there was some kind of saving grace where some of them, the remnant, returned from exile. But it's interesting. You get no record of that of the northern kingdom. In fact, uh. A lot of us know that 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles they describe basically the same history. The only difference is when they were written. 1st and 2nd Kings being written before the exile, 1st and 2nd Chronicles written by Ezra after the exile, reflecting back on the events that led to the exile. Interestingly, if you know your Bibles, what's missing from 1st and 2nd Chronicles? Any of the kings of the northern kingdom. Right? 1st and 2nd Kings will cover the kings of the northern kingdom. By the time you get to Ezra, the northern kingdom is such forgotten knowledge or or, or such insignificance that, that he does not bother to cover them anymore. He covers just the kings of Judah. The people of the northern kingdom, they were the worst of the worst. They were the most sinful of the sinful. People without hope. People completely lost. Completely gone. And yet, here was the most wonderful promise. The new covenant being addressed to them. Of course, to all of us, as well as we look at the Bible overall. But specifically in Jeremiah 31, it's addressed to those people who are still lost. We don't know where they are. We don't know what lineage, you know, where their lineage is. And it's addressed to them. Think about what this means. Think about what this means for you. Think about what this means for Christ Church as you guys do evangelism in Upper Derby in West Philadelphia. Now, I don't have to tell you. I you know, it's been a while since I've I used you know I used to come you know, to 69th Street and hang out with friends. But that was 10 years ago. Okay, and it was rough then. I'm supposing it's a lot rougher now. I mean, think about some of the people that you come across as you're trying to hand out tracts, as you're open-air preaching. Think about how lost they are. Just utterly without hope. You know, maybe they have mental health problems, drug problems, family problems. Life problems. Their, their, their life is totally a mess. You know, got an email this week for a person who didn't have a place to save, wanted to just crash on a couch. People whose lives are in utter shambles. And yet God hasn't given up on them. Right? If God promises the new covenant to people like those in the northern kingdom, then certainly he promises the new covenant to those folks in West Philadelphia. Now, how is that possible? It's possible because of God's love. Look at verse 3. There to begin all of this off, God says in verse 3, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Why are people going to be incorporated in the new covenant? Not because they want to, not because of their goodness, or not because of their will or desire. It's because God will draw them. But why will God draw these worthless sinners? Because of love, because of his everlasting love. My son, Elisha, uh, since the last time I visited you guys, he's learned to play a new game called hide-and-seek. He loves this game, hide-and-seek. A lot of times he'll play, he'll initiate on his own. He'll hide-and-seek with us and we'll play back. A lot of times we'll play together, okay, at the same time, mutual hide-and-seeking. But a lot of times, uh, my, my son also goes through these periods where he's just oblivious to where his parents are. He, he'll just be in his own little world, doing his own little thing. And he'll be completely ignorant or completely not caring about where his parents are. And guess what? My wife and I, we will still go seek him. Get his attention. We always have him in our mind. We always will seek him. Even when he doesn't want to seek us. Why? Because of love. (laughs) Because we love our child. It's not because he's done something good that we go seek him. It's not because we think, oh, possibly he might do something good later. And because of that, let's go seek him. It's not because of he's done anything good or bad that we go seek him. It's because of love. How much more does our heavenly father love us and love sinners? And because of that, we'll draw them into the new covenant. How does this promise impact your life, impact this church? You know, I hope at least it gives us encouragement about how much God indeed loves us. But I also hope it gives you encouragement as you go out on the street and maybe you meet some people and you think, wow, that's worse than a northern kingdomite, (laughs) right? Or a northern Israelite. His life is just, his or her life is just a mess. There is no hope. Why would this person ever turn around and come to know God? Well, there is hope because God loves his people. And his promise of the new covenant is even for the worst of them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, these wonderful words of comfort and encouragement for us uh, not only for ourselves, but also uh, for our work that we engage in uh, during the week, throughout the week, uh, as we try to uh, minister and, and preach and spread your good news, your gospel, uh, to our neighbors uh, in West Philadelphia, in, in Upper Darby, uh, and, and here in Delaware County. Lord, we um, we ask for your strength. We ask for faith. We ask for uh, your spirit to be moving. Indeed, you uh, who promised that you save and you love even the worst sinners, Lord, that indeed you would do your work, that you would draw people, that indeed, as you have promised, you would write your law into into their hearts and change their minds and draw them into this new covenant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.